True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. She's in the kitchen when she hears a noise behind her. She turns. When she sees him, she's not immediately concerned. They'd told him to come back after all said they'd give him another chance. But when she sees the other man and the look on their faces, suddenly everything changes. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 119, The Murders of Annie Liebenberg and Michael Zantar. And right about now, I usually give my monthly tip about what to watch on CBS Justice, the home of true crime on television. From Monday the 5th of June, you can catch the new CBS Justice original, Killer Evidence, hot from British TV screens. From serial killers to vicious gang murders, 10 shocking crimes in the UK and US are solved using forensic investigation with each story told by key people who were there as the action unfolded and who guide us through the investigation from start to finish. Watch it weeknights at 7pm on DSTV, Channel 170, and Starsat 222, until Friday the 16th of June. And be sure to stay listening after this episode for a special bonus interview with renowned UK investigative journalist and criminologist Donald McIntyre, who'll be sharing some special insights from his work on killer evidence. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you to Imelda, Michelle Siliers, Nina, A. Perry, Estelle van der Hoeven, Susan Urlefier, Lexi King, Natalie, Tyler Hack, Andrew Dale, Takara Brook, and Lorraine Kleinkelt for your support on Patreon. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, 
and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Kia This week's case is very recent. The judgment was only just handed down a few months ago. And while every case is tragic, the timeline of events in this case and where the victims were in their lives when they were murdered just adds an additional layer of sadness to something that's already so unnecessary. In researching this case, I used an episode of Heiskanuot Vare Lievensdramas as well as a few media articles I came across. So let's get into episode 119, The Murders of Annie Liebenberg and Michael Zantau. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Annie Liebenberg was born in 1959. She lived in what is now called Polikwani. In the Heiskenuot Vare Lievensdramas episode, her daughter Mareka speaks openly and frankly about her mother. And although I fully understand this is extremely difficult for most families of victims of violent crime to do, and it must have taken a huge amount of strength for Mareka to get through, she clearly gets across that she's doing it because she wants people to know who her mother was as a human being. She doesn't want her mom to just be another headline and a name in a court case. And she does a phenomenal job of that. As she talks to the producers, an image develops in my mind of this woman called Annie. This complex, complicated and wonderful human being who went through a lot of trials and tribulation, but emerged on the other side, not necessarily made stronger by the trauma, but having survived because she was already strong. When Annie was 16 years old, a chance meeting occurred that would really impact both the beginning and the end of her life. Michael Zantau was 18 years old when he met Annie. The pair clicked immediately, and despite living quite far apart, they began their love story by exchanging letters. The concept might seem alien to those who only know the speed and immediacy of digital communication, but for Michael and Annie, there were no text messages or emails. Even phone lines in your house were a luxury so they communicated by what we now call snail mail. There's something about the image of two teenagers rushing home from school each day to check if the mailman had come, eagerly opening up the postbox to see that white envelope, or not, rushing into their bedrooms to read the other's painstakingly handwritten words with giggles and tender smiles. Sadly, as both were at a crux in their lives, moving into adulthood, all the changes they were about to embark on were just too difficult to navigate together, with them being so far apart, and Annie and Michael each went on their own path. 
Both Annie and Michael married other partners and had children within those marriages. Annie had four children with her husband, and when Mareka was seven, she explains that her parents divorced and her mother left her father with the four children in tow. What followed was an extremely difficult period for Annie and her children. Annie was a single mom with no apparent financial support from her ex-husband. She struggled significantly to keep a roof over their heads, and Mareka recalls that often when they weren't able to pay the rent, they had to leave the home that they were living in. During her primary school years alone, Mareka said they moved house up to 18 times. Annie never gave up, though. She worked hard and continued to push to establish a comfortable life for her and her four children. Unfortunately, Mareka says that her mother's desperation to be loved and to be in a healthy relationship often created issues in her life too. Annie seemed to be in a spiral of unhealthy relationships, and it wasn't uncommon for her to find herself with abusive partners. These relationships too seemed to be a point of learning and growth for Annie though, and by the time her children were finishing school, She'd come to a point where she really just wanted to be independent and happy. Annie seemed to become more picky about the men she dated, and her unstable relationship cycle eased out as she realized she deserved far more than what she'd had in previous pairings. Mareka describes her mother as a fighter. She says that if she hadn't been there's simply no way Annie could have survived the difficulties of raising four children on her own. But she was also loving and caring, and wanted more than anything to help others, especially if she saw people suffering the way she had in life. Mareka said that although she'd never known Michael, through her mother's stories, she started to feel like she did. Annie often spoke of the young man she'd fallen so deeply in love with as a teenager, but thoughts of Michael would come and go, and Annie, for the most part, seemed to have resigned herself to the fact that he was in her past, and simply a lovely memory, and nothing more. By 2021, Annie was in a far more secure place in her life. Her four children were grown up, and living their own lives, and she was living on her own, in her own home, fully enjoying her independence. Then, one night while scrolling through Facebook, she came across a person with the surname Zantau. She immediately thought of Michael, of course, and considering it wasn't a terribly common surname, she figured there must be some relation. She followed the digital breadcrumbs, and soon came across a Facebook profile for a Michael Zansar. Annie was by then 63 years old, and she remembered Michael had been two years older than her, which would put him at 65. The man in the profile picture, of course, looked nothing like the 18-year-old boy she remembered, but then she figured neither did she more than four decades later. The eyes in the photograph, though, hadn't changed. They were still the same kind, gentle eyes she remembered. And almost without thinking, she clicked on the message icon and started to type. 
It would take a little while for Michael to see and then respond to her message, but soon their texts were flying back and forth, the same way, perhaps just a little faster, that their letters had decades before. Of course, a lot had changed. Both Annie and Michael had lived entire lives separately since they last communicated, and Annie would discover that she hadn't been the only one who'd had a rough time of it in relationships. Michael had also divorced his wife and was living a solitary existence. She chuckled to herself when she discovered that he was still in Sasselberg. Some things had stayed the same after all. Annie and Michael arranged to meet for a coffee. Both thought it would just be nice to catch up, but what happened would be something very different. Annie would later tell her children that from the moments they embraced, it felt like all the decades that had passed just melted away. They quickly made an arrangement for a second meeting, and then a third, and then, well, I think you know what happened after that. Before long, Annie and Michael were officially a couple. Annie's daughter said that she was a little hesitant at first when she heard her mom and Michael were dating. She was concerned that the man would be similar to some of the others her mom had been involved with, and she really didn't want to see Annie going through that again. But, she says, when she met Michael, she realized he was different. Mareko describes Michael Zantau as calm and thoughtful. He was the exact opposite of her mom, who was spirited, talkative, and full of beans. She immediately felt that her mom would be safe with Michael. And in the weeks that followed, as their relationship quickly developed, she says that she'd never seen her mom happier. Both Michael and Annie knew very well that they were getting on in years. After having been apart for so long, neither wanted to waste any more time. So within just a few months of reuniting, Michael invited Annie to move in with him in Sasselberg. This was a huge decision for Annie. She'd worked really hard to establish herself in her own home and valued her independence fiercely. But she also recognized that what she had with Michael was something she'd never really had before. They brought out only the best in one another, and she really wanted to give herself this chance at love. So Annie made the decision, packed up her belongings, and moved into Michael's house with him in Sasselberg. Around the time that Michael and Annie had reunited, Michael's family had suffered a bereavement when his mother passed away. She'd still been living in their childhood home in Sasselberg, which was only 230 meters from where Michael had purchased his home, and with the house now empty, he was working to renovate it so that he and his brother could decide whether they were going to sell it. With two properties to run, Michael was grateful for the help he had around the house in the form of a young man named Stanley Lingena and his wife. Stanley helped Michael with DIY jobs and garden work at both properties, and Stanley's wife cleaned and did the laundry and ironing for Michael. Stanley hadn't worked for Michael for very long, but he hadn't had any major issues with the young man's work. He did ask to borrow money a lot, 
but Michael would deduct it from his wages, and it didn't really bother him that much. When Annie moved in, though, she got an odd feeling from Stanley and his wife. She began to watch the pair carefully, and soon realised that alcohol and other items were disappearing from the house. In early July 2021, Michael and Annie caught Stanley and his wife red-handed stealing alcohol from the house. Michael told Stanley he could no longer keep him employed at his home if he couldn't trust him, and despite Stanley protesting, he let both of them go. For almost a month, Annie and Michael heard nothing from Stanley and his wife. Annie had felt quite bad that they'd both lost their jobs, but they couldn't condone stealing either, and at the end of the day, it was Michael's choice who worked for him. Toward the middle of August, though, Stanley arrived at Michael's house one day. The young man begged Michael for another chance. He said that he and his wife were struggling terribly without work, and he understood he would have to earn his trust again, but if he would just give him another chance, he could prove that he could be trusted. Michael was hesitant, but after discussion with Annie, who now felt really terrible for the couple, he agreed to give Stanley another chance. He told the young man to come to his mother's house on the 20th of August as he had some garden work he wanted to do and he could help him with that to start off with and then they'd see how things went after that. Annie and her children were very close. They'd been through a lot together and chatted often. Although Annie had been very busy with her move and her new relationship with Michael, she hadn't slacked off on communicating with her children, and still WhatsApped them regularly. So on the 22nd of August, when one of Annie's children hadn't heard from her mom in a few days, and she wasn't getting a response to her texts or calls, she became concerned. She called her sister Mareka, and she too realised that she'd been so busy with her daily life, she hadn't realised that it had been some time since she'd spoken with her mom. Mareka then tried to get hold of Michael, and also got no reply. The last seen status on WhatsApp for both Annie and Michael was the 20th of August. Now very concerned, Mareka contacted Michael's brother, who lived in Sasselberg. He also hadn't heard from the couple, and said it was out of character for Michael not to be on WhatsApp regularly, as he also kept in almost daily contact with his adult children. Michael's brother told Mareka he was going to go to the house to see if he could find them. He promised to keep Mareka in the loop. Michael's brother arrived at his home and found everything locked up. Michael's dog stood in the front yard barking. His brother called out, but there was no response. The front yard gate was impossible to scale, so Michael's brother went to the neighbour who shared a wall with the rear of Michael's property and asked if he could jump over to gain access. Once on the property, the silence was deafening. Michael's dog ran up to him, clearly in distress, and his brother called out several times before spotting the back door of the house, standing open. He went inside and immediately noticed that the desk at which Annie would usually sit working on her laptop 
was empty. The laptop cable was still there, but the computer itself was gone. As the man slowly moved through the house, he noticed more and more items missing and out of place. But the two most important, Annie and Michael, were nowhere to be found. When he entered the kitchen and saw a half-made sandwich sitting on the counter, which was already starting to mould over, he immediately realised something very bad had happened. It was as though Annie and Michael had simply been plucked out of the house while in the middle of their day, and someone had clearly helped themselves to their belongings too. The man walked outside and called Mareka from his cell phone. He told her what he'd found and that he was phoning police. Mareka says that police responded very quickly. Within minutes, they were on scene, and after listening to Michael's brother's account and looking through the house themselves, they agreed that something looked very off. Mareka had by that time arrived at the property, as had Michael's children. They and Michael's brother were asked to wait outside while police searched the property themselves. In an outside room, police found a horrifying scene. Although Michael's brother would have to identify the body found there, he was at least prepared beforehand for what he was about to see. It may have been entirely different had he stumbled upon the scene himself. In the back room lay the body of a female. Her hands and feet had been bound, and she'd sustained several sharp force injuries to her neck and head. The injuries would later be confirmed to have been caused by a knife, very possibly one from the kitchen where the half-made sandwich sat on the counter. Michael's brother identified the victim as Annie Liebenberg. An autopsy would later show that the fierce woman had fought back ferociously against her attackers. She'd sustained several defensive wounds on her hands and arms, both before and after she'd been bound. Annie's daughter was completely stunned by the news that her mother was dead. She says that for a long time it just didn't seem real. Even after she'd seen her mother's body herself, it felt as though at any minute her mom would call her and tell her it had all been a terrible misunderstanding. That, of course, did not happen. And instead, the nightmare only intensified when it was confirmed that Michael was nowhere to be found. Then, Mareka noticed that one of the cars from the property was missing. The white VW Jetta had been a car that Michael had inherited from his parents and held great sentimental value for him. He hardly ever drove it, but also wouldn't let anyone else drive it. Mareka said he wouldn't even let people move it around on the property, and only he ever drove it. He also almost never went out in the vehicle, so it made no sense that it would be missing. In addition, the vehicle that Michael did use regularly was in the yard, but it was parked strangely and not in a way that would be normal for Michael. With the clear signs of robbery in the home and the nature of Annie's murder, 
it seemed clear that this had been a home invasion of some kind. Police and Michael's family were now desperate to find Michael. By this time, it was very late at night, and the grieving family members were asked by police to go home and told that they would be updated. Local police officers were told to be on the lookout for the white VW Jetta, which was now presumed to have been stolen from the home, and a missing persons report was opened for Michael. Now, it's always difficult to know the exact order of events in these cases or why certain things were done before others, but it seems that at this point, police did not immediately move to the other property owned by the Zantars in the very same street, Michael's mother's house. This location would only be visited the next day, but by then another major development would be made in the case. It does seem that in the initial questioning of the family, police asked whether Michael had had any issues with staff members at his home. This is a pretty standard line of inquiry in home invasion situations, because unfortunately many such crimes are traced back to a person who's either been employed in the home or done work there in some capacity in the past. This was when Mareka told police that, yes, actually just the month before, Michael and Annie had let their gardener and cleaner go, who were husband and wife, due to theft. Although Mareka didn't know the man's surname, she told them the gardener's name had been Stanley, and she knew that her mother and Michael had decided to give the man another chance. While this line of inquiry was being investigated, another important event happened in the case. The white VW Jetta, which was presumed stolen from Michael's house, was spotted in an area called Zamdela, near Sattelberg. Police officers attempted to stop the vehicle, but it sped away, and a shootout ensued between police and the people in the vehicle. The suspects managed to escape, and the vehicle would later be found abandoned in Zamdela. In the meantime, though, police were using informants to identify the full name and location of Stanley. Overnight, they were able to determine that the man in question was 38-year-old Stanley Lingena and in the early hours of Monday the 23rd of August, Stanley Lingena was arrested. With him at the time was another man who was found in possession of some of the stolen items from Michael's house, the man, 28-year-old Sitembiso Klongwane, was also arrested. Again, it's difficult to know why Michael's late mother's property wasn't immediately checked by police, as I'm sure family members would have mentioned it. But by that Monday morning, police were there anyway. They'd been directed there by Stanley Lingena. Lingena had agreed to show police where Michael's Antar was. There, police discovered the body of 65-year-old Michael Zantar. Michael had been attacked with an axe. He'd sustained at least four blows to the head with the blade of the axe and had sustained devastating head injuries. While everyone involved had already been horrified by the murder of Annie, 
the Xantals perhaps may have held out hope that Michael may be found alive. But that morning, they would receive the news that he too had lost his life. Stanley Lingena would later claim that he'd been assaulted by police on three occasions. First when he was arrested, then when he claimed he'd been forced to go with police to Michael's late mother's house, and then again when he eventually provided a full confession to a police officer. This confession would also be given to a magistrate, though, and the detail perfectly matched both his initial confession and the evidence on the scenes. In his confession, Lingena said that he'd arrived at Michael's late mother's house that day, as arranged, and asked Michael if he could borrow some money to buy cigarettes before he started working. Michael reluctantly agreed and gave the man 20 rand. Lingena had gone to a nearby shop, where he'd met up with his friend, Sitembiso Klongwane. He'd asked Klongwane if he'd be interested in taking part in a robbery, and the younger man had agreed. Both men had then gone back to the property where Klongwane stayed out of sight, and Lingena lured Michael to a specific area of the garden, which was out of sight of neighbours and couldn't be seen from the street. The two men then pounced on Michael, hacking at his head with the axe until he lay motionless on the ground. They'd then taken what they could find from those premises before leaving in Michael's car to return to his house. The two men had been the ones to park the car, which was why it was parked differently than how Michael would have done it. They then snuck into the house while Annie was making a sandwich in the kitchen and attacked her. The fierce fight that she put up resulted in them tying her up before stabbing her four times in the head and neck with a kitchen knife. They then proceeded to ransack the house before leaving in the VW Jetta. Lingena, in claiming that he'd been assaulted by police and forced to provide a confession, soon changed his story to him having had nothing to do with the murders at all. He claimed he'd been at the house that day, but Michael had said he didn't want the work done after all, and Lingena claimed that Michael had then agreed to let him use the Jetta. Michael's family said that this was absolutely unbelievable, because Michael wouldn't let his own family members drive the vehicle, and Lingena didn't even have a valid driver's license, so there was no way that Michael would have consented to the man driving away in his vehicle. Lingena further claimed that police had planted items from Michael's home in the place where they'd arrested him. But many of the items that were recovered at that time hadn't even yet been flagged as missing from the house and would only later be identified as belonging to, to Michael. Lingena and Longwane appeared in court for the first time on the 25th of August 2021. The families, still reeling from the horrific events of the prior days, were well aware that this was only the beginning of the process. In addition, during this time, the world was dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Soon after the arrests, a new wave and a new variant would hit, and we would be swept into another round of lockdown. 
Court cases that were already significantly delayed were pushed further back, and new cases coming in would wait longer than expected to start. As Mareka and her siblings dealt with the devastating loss of their mother, she says that each of them found different ways to cope, and often grieving became something they each did alone rather than together. They may have been grieving the same woman, but they were all mourning the loss of different aspects of her and how she'd impacted them all individually. Grief, I think, during the pandemic became a terribly complicated process, perhaps much more so than ever before. Even though Mareka and her siblings and the Zantau family had not lost their loved ones to COVID-19, their funerals, the investigations into their murders, and the justice they so badly wanted were all experienced very differently than they would have been under normal circumstances. For many, the simple act of touch and human contact is a great comfort during times of grief. But during that time, contact brought with it the fear that you may be passing on or contracting COVID, which could have life-changing consequences on its own. Funerals were very removed activities. No longer could hundreds of people gather in one place to jointly mourn the loss of someone they'd all loved. The power of that shared experience was reduced to a computer screen for many. Mareka explains how, in the days and weeks after her mother's death, her main focus was to cherish her memory and do whatever last acts of love she could for Annie. Although her body was badly injured during the murder, Mareka took great consolation from being able to help prepare her mother's body for her funeral. For her, it was one last thing she could do to express how much she'd cared. Michael and Annie's love story became a major focus for both families. It was something they held on to that brought them both peace and sadness in equal measures. It was a beautiful thing that they'd been able to find one another again and spend those last six months of their lives together. But it was also horrifically tragic, because they deserved so much more time. And although the verdict was yet to be passed, it seemed that their lives had been taken by someone who they'd only ever tried to help. Lingena and Klongwane would be denied bail, and in early 2022, as they awaited trial, a fellow awaiting trial prisoner, who'd been in the same cell as Klongwane, asked to speak with the investigating officer on the case. Koletsu Nketoa had been arrested for a different crime on the same day as Sitembiso Klongwane and Stanley Lingena, and placed in the same cell as Klongwane. Nketoa would tell Sergeant Chrissy van der Linde that he'd asked Klongwane why he'd been arrested, and Klongwane had said that he and a friend had committed two murders. He'd gone on to tell Nketoa that he and his friend had killed a man at one house and then gone to another house nearby 
and killed the man's female partner. They had then stolen items from both homes, as well as a car. Quite by chance, later that day, Nketoa was transferred to another holding cell, where he met Stanley Lingena. He figured out that this was the friend Klongwane had referred to, but played dumb and inquired as to why Lingena was being held. Lingena went on to tell the same story that Klongwane had. In the statement, Nketoa said that both men had told of their efforts to evade arrest by wiping down areas where their fingerprints might have been, burning the clothes they'd been wearing, and using acid to attempt to remove other biological evidence. The men had allegedly planned to return to the houses on Sunday evening to remove the bodies and burn them elsewhere. Lingena had told Nketoa that this was when the jetter had been spotted by police and they'd been involved in a shootout. There's absolutely no way that Nketoa could have known these very specific details if he hadn't been told them by the men who'd committed the crimes. Nketoa had wanted to share this information with police because he'd been sure that the confession was true. His statement was taken by Sergeant van der Linde with the intention that Nketoa would testify in the upcoming trial. Sadly, Nketoa would pass away in jail while awaiting his own trial for copper cable theft, before Lingena and Longwane's trial could start. When the pair's trial did eventually start in October 2022, Sergeant van der Linde read Nketoa's statement into evidence. Although the defence counsel tried to have it thrown out, the judge accepted that by all accounts, Nketoa had been in the two cells with the two men and he'd also had no reason to fabricate the stories. He'd received no reward for doing so and the judge accepted that his account was likely truthful. Nketoa's statement would be an important piece of evidence because by the time the trial started, both Lingena and Klongwane were pleading not guilty and claiming that any confessions they had given had been beaten out of them. The evidence against the men, though, continued to mount during the trial, and on the 1st of November, a vital piece of physical evidence was presented. Although both men had gone to significant lengths to destroy any physical evidence against them, they'd missed two things. When Michael Zantar was attacked, although he was completely blindsided and likely quickly incapacitated, he did attempt to fight back while he could. During the autopsy, scrapings were taken from underneath Michael's fingernails, and that DNA came back to Stanley Lingena. Lingena's defense attorney would attempt to explain this as transfer from his client shaking hands with his boss but the DNA expert would refute this by saying that the type of material they had gathered was not transferred DNA from a handshake or other touch. It was from skin tissue that could only be gathered in that quantity through scratching someone's skin. Another piece of DNA evidence linked both Lingena to the scene and Longwane to the stolen vehicle. Cigarette butts containing the DNA of both men were found. 
in Genas on the property where Michael's body was found, and Klongwane's in the stolen Jetta. Another witness's testimony would be presented, in which the witness claimed that on the day after the murders, Lingena and Klongwane had come to him with several pieces of electronic equipment, including a tablet. They'd asked him to charge the items for them because they claimed they'd mislaid the charges. The man had agreed and they'd left the items with him, but they'd never come back for them. He would later hear that the men had been arrested for murder and he'd gone to the police with the electronic items which were identified as belonging to Michael Zantal. This witness also could not testify in court because he'd disappeared. He was a Mozambican national, and the state believed he may have returned to Mozambique, but they couldn't say whether he'd done so under pressure from the defendants. Either way, the testimony of the police officer who'd received the electronic items and the statement from the witness was entered into evidence. Stanley Lingena did testify in his own defence, but this testimony would only lead to more questions, as Lingena presented a third version of events to the court, in which he'd been asked by Michael to look after his houses because he and Annie were going on holiday. This was how he gained access to the Jetta, he claimed, because Michael had given it to him to use so that he could easily get to the properties. The state would refute this in cross-examination by pointing to evidence given by several others that Michael was an intensely private person and would never ask someone he only knew through employment to stay in his home and look after it. Nor would he allow anyone to use the Jetta which had sentimental value to him. The state also took this opportunity to point out that Lingena was now presenting a third version of events to the court, which didn't line up with anything else, and while he was legally entitled to change his version, the truth didn't change, and there were glaring gaps and inconsistencies in what he was claiming that didn't make sense. The trial against Lingena and Klongwane would eventually come to a close in April 2023. The defence rested its case, the state confirmed it had nothing further to add, and the judge passed down the verdict. Both Lingena and Klongwane were found guilty of the murders of Annie Liebenberg and Michael Zantau, as well as robbery. On the 18th of April 2023, the men were handed down two life sentences each. Bereka Liebenberg told the media that she was very grateful that the investigation and prosecution teams had worked so hard to get justice for Annie and Michael. She said she couldn't fault a single action taken, and although it had taken a long time to complete the process, that had largely been out of the hands of the teams and they'd been as frustrated as the families with the delays. She points out that her mother was someone who'd struggled significantly in her life, so when she saw Stanley and his wife struggling too, she felt a connection with them, and wanted to give them another chance. This, she said, would be her fateful mistake. Really, though, I don't think it was Annie or Michael's mistake. 
Although it's important to keep your wits about you and not get hoodwinked by those who really aren't remorseful for their actions, their good nature and their belief in humanity was not an error on their part, at least in my opinion. Rather, the error in judgment rests solely on the shoulders of Stanley Lingena. It is Stanley who took advantage of two people who just wanted to help him. The life sentences handed down in this case were backed by the determination that these murders were premeditated. How far that premeditation went is up for debate. But it's entirely possible that Lingena had approached Michael and Annie with claims of him and his wife suffering with the precise intention of getting back into their good graces so that he could have access to them. Lingena knew very well that he couldn't rob them himself without being caught, as they'd be able to immediately identify him. He could well have arranged for others to do it, but that would have meant he'd have to split the spoils with more people, and he clearly wasn't willing to do that. So in Lingena's mind, the only option was to make sure that Annie and Michael couldn't tell the tale. I must say that I'm a little disturbed by the level of knowledge Lingena showed around physical evidence. For someone who seems to have been a first-timer at this, he actually did a very good job of destroying a lot of evidence. It is possible that this knowledge came from Klongwane, but neither man strikes me as having been the kind of criminal who would have had such deep knowledge of such things. Unless, of course, this wasn't the first time they'd done this. Annie Liebenberg's defensive wounds prove that she put up an immense fight in her last minutes on Earth. That is unsurprising, as she'd been fighting her entire life. Fighting for her independence, fighting to raise her children, and then finally fighting for her chance at happiness. I can only hope that in those final moments, both Michael and Annie thought that they were the only ones being targeted. I hope that their last moments were not spent terrified about the safety of the other. The reality is, though, that it's very likely, as Michael was scratching at his attackers, unknowingly securing the DNA that would help convict them, and trying to save his own life, he may have considered the fact that Annie was alone and helpless at home, just 230 metres away. He knew by that point that Stanley had betrayed him, and he knew that once he was incapacitated, Annie would have no idea what was coming for her. Lingena and Longwane burned their clothes, and considering the violence of the attacks, especially Michael's with an axe, I have no doubts that they had blood and other biological material on their clothes. And so, it's also very likely that when Annie turned around that day to find a young man she'd wanted to give another chance to, standing in her kitchen, wielding a knife, 
She saw Michael's blood on his clothes. I often think about the last few minutes of victims' lives, and in some ways I wonder if the terror that a killer leaves that victim with is almost worse than anything they can do to their bodies. We all want to die painless deaths, but perhaps more so, I think we all deserve our last moments on this earth to be peaceful and not filled with terror for our own and our loved one's safety. Michael and Annie could have no idea how fateful their reunion would be. If they hadn't got back together, perhaps things would have played out differently. But really, it wasn't their reunion that needed to change. It wasn't even their caring hearts that allowed them to give Stanley another chance. What needed to change for this never to have happened was for Stanley Lingena to accept that he'd screwed up by stealing and to try and mend his ways. But instead, he refused to acknowledge that he was wrong and decided that Michael and Annie needed to pay for their kindness in the worst way possible. Annie Liebenberg Michael Zantar, rest gently. Now I have some special bonus content for you, courtesy of CBS Justice. Donald McIntyre is a renowned UK investigative journalist and criminologist. McIntyre appears in the CBS original Killer Evidence. In this interview, I chat with Donald about his work in investigative journalism, his undercover reporting, and his insights into investigations and the killer evidence he's seen come up in cases. Killer evidence focuses quite heavily on physical forensic evidence and crimes. In your early career as an investigative reporter, many of these forensic tools didn't exist or they were in their early stages. What's your experience been of how the process of criminal investigations has changed over the years as a result of these new forensic techniques being added to the arsenal? Well, that's a very good question because two things are revealed to the audience that I'm as old as a dinosaur. And secondly, it does hit, hit upon not only the work I did in the past, but also some of the cold cases I do now. So, so <laughs> well done, Nicole. No, it's a great question. And, and thank you for that. I think what's interesting is I just, um, on some of the cold, back in the day, in around the early 1990s, I was doing undercover investigations. Um, so as part of my own investigative stuff, and we were kind of, uh, we, we worked by ourselves, but I would say our covert and undercover standards and, and practices were higher than the police. We probably had more resources than the police. We went undercover in the world of fraudsters and, and um, uh, drug dealers and uh, uh, football hooligans and the fashion industry, to name, and we hit blue collar and white collar. And so then the evidence we were creating were not only traditional journalistic paper evidence. We were, we were investigating and gathering first-hand testimony, and we were following it 
And the usual rules around that would be your traditional American kind of application of rules. You don't really want to incite people to say anything that uh, they otherwise wouldn't do. You're not uh, paying or bribing people to say things that they wouldn't do. And the evidence has to be pretty uh, um, uh, pristine. The other thing about that is that uh, when we go to court and we often have got convictions on the basis of the evidence as kind of journalistic, we're not journalistic prosecutors, but inevitably in this arena, we often come uh, and you know work for the BBC and ITV and CBS Justice. But, but in the early days, uh, we would assume a role because the defence teams would prosecute us in the in the witness box, but we would have no defense where we couldn't redact evidence, we couldn't have PII public interest immunity stuff where, where we could take away material, every expense, every email. It was the full-on Donald Trump disclosure from Congress. Nothing was hidden. So um in that respect, my my practice as an early investigator slash pseudo journalistic prosecutor, and that's, and that's a term I've just invented now, but I, I reckon I, talking to you, I understand that, that we were kind of in that prosecutorial role, but our evidence gathering was face-to-face testimony, and that's hugely persuasive. But the bar we placed was on video evidence. We, what you see is what you get, and that's a very strong and powerful weapon. At the time, the first, I think the very first conviction for uh, reliance upon uh, uh, for uh, DNA, forensic DNA, was around 86 or 87, um, if I'm not mistaken. And so the first real murder that um, that I've been looking at, I mean, I'm lo- just looking at a cold case murder of uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier in 1996. I also did a lot of work on the murder of Stephen Lawrence uh, uh, at the same in the same uh, year, maybe it was, yeah, 1993, maybe. And uh, basically, uh, the involvement of DNA in that. In relation to the Sophie Toscan de Plante murder, where a suspect was convicted in France, and this took place in Cork, it was the murder of, of a French film producer, hugely powerfully connected to the to the French uh, uh, political establishment and Mitterrand. And, um, uh, the police, the Irish police at that stage came in and they they effectively focused on one man who volunteered his DNA in 1996, knowing the context of what that meant. But his DNA was never found in a brutal and graphic crime scene. And which basically, to my mind, said, listen, this guy must must be uh, innocent. But the standards of the uh, of the, the quality of that, you know, was so poor. I mean, really, it was kind of, you know, uh, prehistoric in terms of the evolution of crime. The DNA, in terms of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which has uh, became a landmark uh, a crime for uh, racial um, uh, injustice in terms of the institutional racism in the UK, and still percolates about police corruption and all of this in the UK. It, it took a friend of mine, Clive Driscoll, um, uh, that took you know, until 2011 or 12 to finally get convictions and three million pounds worth of taxpayers' money to re-scrutinize and to, uh, and to take the original D- material from the crime scene and then retest it and retest it. And that material had been tested many, many times. But in this respect, the most powerful the, uh, the most powerful tools, three million pounds worth, were suddenly were able to go at a very subatomic level and get micro specs of DNA and fibers to get a conviction in that case. Uh, I think they're in relation to the case which I have done a program on with Jim Sheridan, who's a 
kind of uh, a very esteemed documentary, I mean, a film producer and director. We did a film on the um, murder in the cottage on Sophie Toscan de Plantier, and um, we're hoping that there is a new DNA um, investigations. But it does show that the, that the evolution not the cost. So the quality has risen, but the cost of those investigations are huge. And there's no doubt, apropos killer evidence, and our focus on um, uh, DNA and the forensic CSI specialist is that the people often forget that one of the biggest turning points in any investigation is the quantum. How much will this cost? And, um, you know, you will say, well, every life is worth everything. Well, you can't spend three million pounds on a hope and a prayer. And because the, the Lawrence Inquiry and, and Clive Driscoll, um, Chief Superintendent Cl Clive Driscoll, um, because he bullied his way. And often it's the police officers. So the first thing is the cost. So how do you get over that? Well, that cost is only really very much available for unique and high profile and what they call signal crimes, signal cases. And signal crimes are those crimes that we associate that kind of have a transformative impact on the society beyond the murder of one young 18 year old. You know, sad as that is, the murder of Stephen Lawrence transformed the rules and regulations at the workplace around all the UK. So it was a transformative case and three million pounds. It was unsolved for, for nearly uh, 15 years and uh, then three million pounds were spent on it. And, and so the cost is important, but the personality of the police officers who are engaging with some of the DNA companies and specialists are also crucial because Clive Driscoll, he could easily have said, well, we can't solve this. It's been DNA's DNA to death tested. And he tells me this wonderful story uh, that uh, he had these top doctorates in um, some of these top, you know, in physiology and biology and forensic testing who were telling these guys who were Cambridge and Oxford degrees saying, listen, I'm telling you, Clive, this is my expertise. We have done everything we, we, we need to do. There's no more to be done. And he would say, well, you know, I appreciate your doctorate from Harvard and from Cambridge, but I got a D in woodwork in my GCSE and I'm a stupid cop. And I'm telling you, I'm the CIO, I'm the senior investigation officer, SIO, and we're doing it. That's it. And he, and he, and he also persuaded to force of character, um, Cressida Dick, the then commander at the Met, to, to uh, spend the money. So... It's not just the, that the techniques have evolved, it's also that the cost of it has evolved, but also it, the, it shows the ecosystem and the persuasive ecosystem to work with um, your DNA specialist and your forensic specialist, your team, and to have the force of character to know when to apply that, that, that pressure. We need the money now, this will solve it. But of course, if you take the three million pounds and you don't get a result, as likely as, you know, then, of course, you've lost your political and social uh, capital. And the next time you really need that money, uh, you mightn't have it. Um, so it's really interesting that people often forget the, the, the role of budget and personality and personnel in the battle against crime. Because, you know, if someone doesn't fight hard enough to, to pursue one line of inquiry or fight hard enough for a budgetary line, then those lines are not pursued and they may very well be the lines that might um, solve the case. I think that leads quite well into my next question, which is, 
Have you ever felt as though investigators rely too heavily on techniques like DNA? And do you think that this could perhaps make for a less effective investigation overall? Oh, that's a really good question because I think you're absolutely right. I think I think there, very interestingly, there often is an over-reliance on the CSI to pull it in because officers come to the scene and and I and they they decide and with reasonable intuition and experience and gut feeling. And I'm a supporter of gut feeling because, you know, a gut feeling and intuition is built upon years of experience. So it's about using, it's using the back processes of your mind, synapses crackling, and they're saying, right, how do we, uh, and all their information experience distills into a theory or a couple of theories. And they say, well, I can say here, and they can do, like a bur- experienced burglar walking down a suburban street, they know the landscape so well, they can know by the car outside the driveway where the key is placed. Is it placed under a milk bottle? Is it placed under the flower pot? Is there a back window going to be open? They, 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 there's a lot of presumed and, and experiential knowledge here. Same with the investigators. And, the pro- and they can build a picture of what is a likely perpetrator and 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 means of murder here but that also sometimes they get it wrong sometimes i think this is how it's going to happen surely with this entire landscape here we are going to be able to pick out um and and uh, with the dna absolutely get the uh, get the suspect and in this case uh, but sometimes that isn't the case i'm reminded really interestingly i've just finished a book called um, million ways uh, to stay in the run about a very infamous uh, murder uh, uh, over here, which which was um, uh, it, it was the murder of a uh, of a um, road rage suspect, Stephen Cameron, by Kenneth Noy, who had um, stabbed a policeman, but had uh, and that was a case of self defence and a very unusual case. In any case, he was the public enemy number one, and he got involved in the road rage case. Now. This is a classic case in point about um, how you interpret evidence initially. So initially, the chief inspector, um, Nick Biddes, is on a golf course. He's in charge of all the murders in that area. And he gets a call on the golf course, blah, blah, blah. Murder, road rage incident, knife involved. There's about 30 or 40 witnesses. There's CCTV everywhere. He thinks it's a self-solver, right? Somebody's going to see. We're going to get a number a car, CCTV, going to track it down. Likewise, the perpetrator, uh, Kenny Noy, thought, listen, Jesus, this is going to self-solver. There'll be witnesses, my car, blah, 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 everything, right? So what he did was the perpetrator immediately went home. He didn't think he died at first, but once he realized the guy died, he immediately arranged his departure from the country. He got rid of the car, replaced his car with another car in a very clunky kind of way, got the car destroyed and fled and disappeared, right? So, um, but what actually happened was the CCTV cameras didn't work. The witnesses were, by and large, completely unreliable. The, the, they, they never got the proper... His car might have been one of 20,000 Land Rovers or Range Rovers. So, in fact, and there was no DNA in the scene, and this was 1996. So there was actually everything that the perpetrator had assumed the police would have and everything that the police assumed they would have about the perpetrator witnesses, it never happened. So if the perpetrator had actually done nothing, simply gone home and done nothing, he'd have got away with it. And that's one of those things about presumed kind of th- reliance upon the ev- evidence in the landscape. And of course, you're absolutely right. There is a fear that, that we're reliant entirely upon DNA to solve the case. 
reality is in UK crime cases and murders are only a fraction. DNA is only used in about 2% of cases. Why would you use it? You know, because it's too expensive. So they use it for um, uh, murder cases and violence and maybe big theft cases. But in the totality of, of crimes from the magistrate's court to the more serious which appear in the, in the, the crime court over here, very, uh, very few cases actually use that. You know, all the evidence is gathered. So if they need it, yes. But they wouldn't send, uh, per se, every item off for DNA testing at all, you know. But obviously with murders and all of that stuff, you'd imagine, yeah, yes, they would. Yeah. Uh, they would. So, uh, yeah, no, it's a very interesting point to raise. In the first episode of Killer Evidence, you mentioned how you think AI might eventually be able to take over some functions in the analysis of certain types of evidence. Can you talk a bit more about some of the other roles you foresee AI being helpful with in criminal investigations in the future? But, well, I think we already we started off with kind of uh, automatic number plate recognition, right? And then uh, I'm reminded that basically that that when officers are given CCTV, like currently, and they're you know and trained officers, they're going they're working their way through. Like, so let's go through somebody in a major city. They're going through. There might be 140 cameras, 200 cameras. Somebody's got to process all of those, right? In a in a very in a in a in a time slot and work their way out and see it. And it's a very difficult and time consuming. Uh, first of all, it takes, so for each, to my mind, because I have done this myself on my own evidence that I've gathered undercover. That you know, in order for you to 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 log the material, and then to go through it and forensically examine it. So to examine one hour of material for, you know, forensically and to an evidential standard, it probably takes about six hours. So if now we understand that, you know, with ChatGPT4 and uh, and then if you're working with, with these companies, AI companies, you would work with your own programs, you would quite I think quite predictably be able to put in your parameters into a program with ChatGPT4 or equivalent, and that all that work would be done practically instantaneously. You know, and you would say this person here, and they would track. So that problem is solved in an instant. And so now I can imagine this. I can imagine. Um, uh, I would be surprised if it's not being done on the side right now. That people say, "Here is the list of suspects. Here's what we know about them." Um, there's the social media accounts. Go chat GPT and see who you think is most likely. I can see it's, you know, at the moment, there. I'm sure there are uh, guys in Quantico and there are guys in that's in the FBI headquarters in the US. I'm quite sure that they're playing a parlor game with chat GPT and developing that into tools as we speak. More interestingly, I think, in relation to uh, the other era, uh, I mean, they're now, in terms of, committing a crime and how to, you know, this other part of the game, how to commit the perfect murder. Um, if you're the, the people who really know how to commit the perfect murder are those who are, who we call our non-apprehended offenders, either people who got away with it. They're the people who know. And people who've been involved in that kind of arena, um, they nowadays, with the proliferation of cameras and digital technology and lives, it's very, very difficult not to leave a trace. But just sometimes, and mostly, if people get away with murder, it's because they're very, very lucky. Something falls down, something happens. I did speak to one criminal recently 
and uh, he said he was uh, involved in, in, in difficult crime scene about 30 years ago. And he said, this guy was, they had some beef, this guy was going to take him out. And uh, so um, he said, I'm going to do so I'm going to take him out before he does. And so he spent one day casing him out and thought it'd be all good. And he knew because he had beef with this particular guy that the police would come knocking on his door as a likely suspect. But he had an alibi. So he had his car at home. He was there. And uh, he snuck out the back, took another vehicle and went there. So in the first day he went there to the guy's house, the, the, the target wasn't present. The second day he went there and as he arrived, he was arriving up there, he saw all these police activity out there and um, somebody else had got to him first and killed him. And to his, to my friend's mind, that was the perfect murder. He went to, he went to kill him, but somebody else got there first and okay. was like, okay, man, yeah, fine. You know, so uh, uh, it's very difficult to commit the perfect murder, but nowadays they will be able to, in, in future, within 10 years, if you go into a room and breathe, your DNA will be there, right? If you go, you know, the the um, the identity, it's it's so microscopic, um, the, you know, and what we leave, and, and even um, our smell, everybody smells and odor, it's so distinctive um, that I'm sure in 10 years, just a mere breath in a room will be able to locate somebody in that room. So that's getting very, very, uh, very, very, uh, you know, very exciting. So the, the, the prospect of committing a murder and getting away with it in highly developed countries with highly developed kind of, and, and not on where violence is on the scale as it is in South Africa, but in, say, in the UK and in America, uh, outside of gangland violence, the, the, the likelihood of getting away with it is kind of increasingly slim. You know, but uh, so it's a fascinating area where chat GPT and science will go. Listening to you tell that story, do you think that the undercover reporting work you did has given you a different perspective of criminals and crime in general? Do you feel like you've maybe witnessed the underbelly that we all view from a removed place firsthand? Well, when I went undercover in the drug gangs in Nottingham and, you know, and the drug dealers there were earning, this was in 19, uh, they were earning like 350,000 pounds a week. Like this is like, this is then cash profit. And one of them told Wayne Hardy and, uh, and, you know, I got to know him. I got a job on the back, it took me nine months to get a job as a bouncer and curry his favor and bring, and I became his gym buddy. And we, it was a, if you're an undercover copper, you'd be expecting results very quickly. But if you're an undercover copper, you would have two people around you supporting you. I was there in the city all by myself. So it was kind of reckless uh, of my employers to put me in that position. But as it happened, I came out safe. But I got to know him as a person, as a friend. But my job was to basically, in television terms, convict him for a drug dealer, which I did. Right? Uh, but I did get. But subsequently, I came back and revisited him. And and although he got time in jail for other crimes, but uh, uh, he was made notorious in front of kind of nine million viewers. That was the kind of ratings we had back in the day. And we did a two-part series called Wayne's World and The Untouchables. And he, um, I befriended him, and he came back. We did a film together. And the film where he presents himself, yes, in his arena, he was incredibly entrepreneurial. If he was middle class, he'd be a share dealer and make loads of money. And in fact, he has spent some time in South Africa, was deported from South Africa. But he was a lovely guy, and he was, but, but, 
and would have had a nasty side to him, but I saw the human quality to him. And I think living cheek by jowl with these criminals over long term, infiltrative, immersive, uh, uh, kind of, and you're buried in the world rather than jumping in for a day or being, you know, meeting them in prison as you would as a criminologist uh, or as a, a forensic psychologist or, or even prison governor. Um, now, it was fascinating. So you get to see a more rounded uh, pro, um, uh, kind of, kind of perspective, uh, perspective on them. And I must admit, when, he, when I, we did a show together, he told me that, you know, about the tra- when he was in prison, you know, his first uh, his partner committed suicide and took their, their, his firstborn child at the same time in this terrible tragedy. His, his brother died you know, just accidentally. But his daughter became, a 14-year-old daughter as a drug dealer, became a crack addict, and he, he worked with her. And so, you know, it's not without tra- tragedy. Uh, and it's not for, not entirely that reason why some of these people end up um, in, in crime. But I've always tried to look and expand. So it wasn't just a job of, right, okay, I went undercover in this guy's world. We trained together, became best mates. And then after nine months or 10 months, I said, oh, hi, by the way, you knew me as Tony. And he's looking at me, and as a TV crew, I am in fact Donald McNair, World of Action reporter. And it's like, and you can just imagine face went white. And to his credit, he didn't react violently. But then, very quickly, he went off with uh, another colleague of his to try and kill me. I've subsequently befriended uh, his other colleague who now works in, in the uh, uh, criminal justice system and as a social entrepreneur, repairing the lives of young criminals. So. If you're keeping your eyes open and understand, see people beyond their crimes, I'm not apologizing for the crimes or excusing it, but I do think the way to try and, uh, as our, you know, uh, CBS Justice audience does and as our audience and, uh, and our true crime audience does, it's not just a visceral, raw, you know, interest uh, in this world of true crime. They, I've noticed the true crime audience become much more sophisticated. Like me, as an individual, they want to know more, they want to understand more. It no longer is just saying two legs bad, four legs good, or, you know, in the, um, uh, or in that sense, the Aurelian sense, it is much, they want to understand why, how, where, what are the antecedents, what are the precedents, and also, you know, how can we help prevent that? Uh, in the first instance, the drive is to get justice for the victim and the victim's fine, to hold them accountable. And then the next step has to be to understand and uh, and perhaps reclaim and then prevent further instances uh, of that. And interesting, in murders here in the UK, um, where there is a real where, where for example, where, for example, the state could have done better if they released a prisoner and he committed murder uh, or if there was a police failure or an institutional failure. There's a thing called an Article 2 inquest where they can have a long-standing inquest, which is dedicated not only to finding out how someone died, why they died, but also what lessons can be learned. And I think that, you know, in many ways, the viewer, the true crime viewer, the CBS Justice and uh, viewer is interested in that kind of article two kind of analysis. They want to know, um, you know, how, why, and also what can be done. And I think they get, a, a, I think they, they do get a, a, a kind of boost when they know that uh, that additional la- layer is given to a program or an investigation, you know, that, you know, the how, why, but also how we can prevent this in future. I don't want to give too much away about the series before viewers watch it, but in that first episode, 
You mentioned that the offender, having pled guilty, served his psychopathic need to boast about his crimes. This desire for attention is often clear in serial offenders with psychopathic tendencies during trials. But why do you think that this offender would have preferred to admit his crimes rather than having the full experience, so to speak, of hearing months of evidence about his crimes, as well as all the attention that that would have brought him? I think it's about control and power. And that is that he had no control over whether he's going to be convicted. He likely would do. But then the victory would have been given to the jury and to the police and the prosecutors. Right. In this case, he was a, had the he had the uh, power of surprise, you know, and control. I decide I'm the man who decides who's guilty, who's not. I'm the person. So that's that was his matrix. You know, so he was a performer and a performer always knows it's not how long you're on screen. It's the punch. You know, it really is this. It's, 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 it's the smack crackle and uh, um, uh, of, of a single moment, which makes you the star. So if it had been a long drawn out process, you know, he got a conviction as everyone expected. You know, where was his moment? His big moment is the moment we're, we're still talking about. To everybody's surprise, he pleaded guilty. And I think that was his effort at control. He was, the, he was now the master of ceremonies. And so he basically, you know, having set everybody else up for this kind of the jury, the judge, everybody for a long, drawn out kind of um, courtroom. This wasn't a gift to the victims. This wasn't a gift to the budgets of the criminal justice system. This was absolutely a kind of ownership of control and power and a performance. I'm in charge. And like I was during the execution of these murders, I remain the ringmaster. I do hope that you enjoyed that interview with Donald McIntyre. And don't forget to catch him in his new CBS original series, Killer Evidence, weeknights at 7pm on DSTV Channel 170 and Starset 222, running until Friday the 16th of June. Thank you once again to CBS Justice for the opportunity to chat with Donald McIntyre and for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify, or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.